the August 2017 edition of my book club. Uh, this month, the book was Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, Adventures of a Curious Character. And this is the autobiography of the famous Nobel Prize winning physicist Richard Feynman. And the reason that I picked this book, and in particular the reason that I like reading biographies, is that very often the things that you want to improve about yourself, you want to be more patient, you want to be more disciplined, you want to be more adventurous or more interesting, a lot of these abstract ideas are very hard to internalize when you talk about them in an abstract way. So if I said, you know what, being patient is really important. Well, you might say to yourself, you know what, you're right, being patient is very important. And then I put you in a situation, a concrete situation where you have the option to be patient or you have the option to quit or get frustrated or switch immediately. And when you are now in this concrete situation, you very often don't apply this abstract principle that you said was very important. Very often you say to yourself, you know what, yeah, I, I know maybe patience is important or maybe you don't even think to apply patience, but right now in this situation, I really feel my instinct is to do X, to quit or to switch or change trajectories or do something different. And I think that's why it's so good to find these exemplars, these people that you really admire, that you think have these qualities that you'd like to emulate in yourself and read their biographies to see how they handled specific situations, to see if their instincts or their guidance for how they decided to resolve certain situations is maybe different from yours. And by seeing how this person approached a concrete situation differently, I think that's a much better way of internalizing these qualities. So the reason I think to read this particular book is that Richard Feynman, if you haven't heard of him before, is just this amazing example of someone who is extraordinarily curious, who is always very interested in how things work. And in particular, he did not really accept the surface explanation of things. So he was always, but how does it really work? What is really going on underneath? And I think that's such an important quality that even though I try to cultivate it myself, there are many situations where I would have just taken explanation X for granted and Richard Feynman was like, well, that can't, you know, maybe that's not the real explanation. What's, what's really going underneath? So he really sought to have this very deep understanding of things. He had intellectual breadth, meaning that a lot of people who are good at one thing try to stick to that. So if, you know, you are really good at physics, but you're not good at drawing, as Richard Feynman was, maybe you'd say to yourself, you know, and I'm not good at that drawing thing. I'll leave that to the artist. Whereas he did the opposite. He decided he's going to learn drawing and he ended up becoming, you know, a sort of professional artist where he's selling his artwork. He was very adventurous and bold and confident. So you could see how he makes these decisions on, you know what, that would be cool. That would be fun. Let's do that as opposed to trying to play it safe, trying to avoid risks and problems. And finally, just how questioning he is of authority and dogmatism, which allowed for a lot of his most original and creative ideas. So really, I think it's kind of impossible for me to summarize this book because the thing you need to get from the book is not the summary, but seeing all these concrete situations and seeing how Richard Feynman reacted to those situations, sometimes with success, sometimes with comical results, and using that to question your assumptions about how you would do things if you were in that situation. So just to give some breadth of a, a summary for this, I'll give a real quick highlight of his life. He starts out, he's very bright, excels in school. He's a real tinkerer. He's fixing radios and doing these kind of things even from a young age. He does his undergraduate at MIT. 
later does his graduate studies at Princeton. Uh, after that, he's working on the Manhattan Project uh, during World War II, helping them, you know, design the atom bomb. He becomes a professor at Cornell. He, you know, develops many important discoveries and theories. He works on lots of ideas. This later leads to him getting the Nobel Prize, in addition to having a lot of physical things named after him. And along the way, he learns to pickpocket, speak Portuguese and Japanese, becomes this sort of professional artist. He works on his theories and research in a strip club, and he plays the bongos a lot. So this is a guy who is very eclectic and eccentric on top of his great important discoveries. So because it's impossible to summarize, I won't be able to give you the full breadth of what he's done unless you want to read the book. But I'll just talk a little bit about some of my favorite stories from the book, however briefly. And then I'll talk about this a little bit more with Khalid Azad, who I invited to discuss this a little bit more depth what we liked about the book and what we thought were the main takeaways for our own lives. So one of my first stories that I really liked from him is when he was, this is in his later years and he's working on something and he finds this paper that he's, you know, I can't make heads or tails of this. And at the time, it's actually his sister that says, well, you know what, you're saying this because you didn't discover it yourself because you weren't personally like involved with figuring it out and figuring out all the steps of logic yourself. You say that it doesn't make sense to you. And so he actually goes through and goes line by line and tries to understand. And he says, once I actually did that and put in the work, it made sense to me. And this is a real kind of small, trivial example, but it made a profound impact on me. That was the story that I heard that eventually led to me developing this Feynman technique, which was trying to emulate this sort of approach of basically, if you don't understand, if you can't discover it yourself, maybe you don't really understand it and how that was you know, underlying a lot of Richard Feynman's understandings, but also this kind of meticulousness, this going through it and explaining it to yourself as a way of understanding it. Another more casual story that I really like is where he's uh, doing some painting and this guy who's sort of a professional painter uh, says, oh, you know, I, you know, I'm making yellow paint. Uh, you mix red paint and white paint. And Richard Feynman's like, well, and that can't be true. You know, I don't know a lot about paint mixing, but I know that you mix red and white and you get pink. You don't get yellow. And the guy says, no, 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 you, know, you mix red and white and you get, you get yellow. And he says, well, maybe there's some kind of chemical reaction going on. Like, how can I explain this, you know, that this mixing of these paints gives this sort of bizarre result. And the guy ends up, he gets the paint and he's mixing the white and the red. And of course, it's getting pink paint. It's not getting yellow paint. And then the guy says, oh yeah, you know what, I add a little bit of, uh, I got this tube of yellow paint that I add into it to get the, the final color. And so he says, aha, you know, that's how you were able to get the yellow paint is because you were adding a bit of yellow paint to it. And I think this is a very interesting story, aside from being somewhat comical and amusing, because he was saying how his developed understanding of the world, this sort of idea that you know, there must be something crazy going on instead of considering perhaps the simpler theory that, you know, this guy's maybe not telling the whole truth or he's not revealing everything to it. And I think, although it can backfire, I think this really also shows a sort of principle of developing these deep models of the world and deep understanding that have this explanatory breadth. So he had this physics knowledge, this knowledge about color and light and these kind of things work that led him to leave, you know, there must be something funny going on if you mix red and white paint and get yellow. Another idea I really like 
comes from when he was in Brazil teaching. And that's its own story that I think is quite amusing. But he talks about lecturing the class about this kind of a polarization of light. So the idea that uh, light as a wave can, you know, it can go in this direction or it can go in this direction. And that makes a difference. And so you can have polarizers that are special sheets that allow light that's going in this way, but not light that's going in that way and that kind of thing. And he said that he was lecturing to these students and he was saying, well, who knows what polarization light is? And everyone gives the exact textbook definition. He's like, okay, great. And he says, uh, so this is a light polarizer and so it'll only, light will only go in this direction. And he says, so how could we tell with just one of these strips what the direction of light is? No one has any ideas. No one knows how to solve it. And he says, well, uh, do you know about the polarization of light when it comes from reflections. And again, the people give like this is exact textbook definition of Brewster's angle and like, yes, it's like this and it's polarized in this direction. He's like, okay, well then how would you be able to tell which way it's polarized on this polarizer just with one of the films? And again, no understanding, no way of explaining it. And he eventually learns by talking to them through there that they had learned physics by memorizing these definitions, memorizing these concepts and what they mean definitionally, but not in the flexible way of knowing how to use them. And I know this is a very common story and this is something that repeats itself to this day in many different places, but I think it really respects his philosophy of learning being this deep understanding of concepts, not just regurgitating memorized expressions or memorized formulas or memorized, oh, well, you do this, 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 and this, but that you have this real deep understanding of how ideas work. And this is something that I've strove for myself in my own learning. And I think Richard Feynman has been a great inspiration for me in that regard. So really, it's impossible to summarize. There's many, many stories that I think you should really read all of them if you want to get a chance to see what this person was like and how they may respond and think about things differently than you might. Um, now I'm going to go and have a conversation with Kalita Zod where we're going to talk in a little bit more depth about some of the other ideas of the book and how they influenced us. So today I have Kalita Zod who uh, was also two months ago our book club for Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance to discuss Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, Adventures of a Curious Character. So what did you think of the book, uh, Khalid? Yeah, it's one of my, um, Feynman is one of my kind of explanation heroes. So when I try to explain things in my head, I sort of have a, what would Feynman do attitude towards things. So it was really, um, you get the is... bracelet that just says, you know, exactly. Yeah. I think <laughs> <W-W-F-G-A>. sticker, <laughs> I need a little logo of his head or something on my car. Yeah. Um, so it was really, uh, I mean, it was a good read. I, I read it a while back and, um, coming back to it this time, um, especially for the, for the discussion here, I was a little bit more careful and, you know, highlighting quotes and things. Um, and it was just a nice reminder of kind of the attitude that I think a genuine, genuinely curious person um, ideally should have. He, he has kind of a, I mean, he, he's very, he's kind of got that Socratic wisdom to him where he kind of pretends not to know anything. He does know a lot of things, but he's always willing to question himself and um, especially to question others. So I think his attitude towards learning is to kind of take away a lot of the academic pedestals that, you know, kind of the reverence of experts and things and sort of work things out for himself so not being afraid to say that he's confused or to ask someone to give an example and i think that kind of attitude is what leads to real understanding so it's um for me it's pretty inspiring to see somebody that reached pretty much the highest levels of of knowledge in his field to still have that approach so of course we're talking about uh 
Richard Feynman, who was a Nobel Prize winning physicist, worked on the Manhattan Project, so insanely accomplished. But the thing you really get the feeling of reading this book is just how down to earth he is. And I think this raises a very interesting, uh, interesting question. And this is something that we talked about in the discussion group. And there were lots of people weighing in with their opinions. And that is, how does, you know, clearly Richard Feynman is a genius. You know, if, if we're allowed to use the word to describe anyone, we can use it to describe him. He won a Nobel Prize in physics. So I think, you know, if you're, if you're not going to use it for him, I don't know what the, what the word exists for. So he's clearly a genius, but there's a real sense that you get that not only was he, he's always been very smart. So, you, you know, even in the beginning of the book where he's like fixing radios and, and doing these kinds of things, it's clear he's quite intelligent. And he has this sort of raw intelligence, again, if there is such a thing, an innate uh, raw intelligence. But also what struck me was just how his attitude was towards learning everything. And I think, you know, there's probably some interplay there that, you know, if you're very intelligent, you have just this robust confidence, and then the confidence allows you to do things, but it's also aided by the intelligence. And so there's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem here. But I think you put it right on the, the money that this was someone who not only had this incredible confidence in learning new things and trying new stuff and, and broadening his knowledge and believing that he could understand things, but he also had this real, um, yeah, this real playfulness to it, this real irreverence, this real questioning of authority and dogma. And I think his curiosity was probably one of his best qualities. So what do you think is the kind of interplay between this innate talent versus personality or, or versus attitude? Yeah. Um, I think Feynman, um, I, f I forget if it was this book, um, but he, I think he discussed taking an IQ test or something and he wasn't particularly, um, you know, he wasn't genius level or something. It was, it was high, but it wasn't like, you know, s stratospheric there. And um, I think he, uh, basically his success I think came from his willingness to admit what he didn't know. So I think there's, there's another um, quote, I can't remember, but you know, basically a man can't um, kind of, a man can't learn what he thinks he already understands. And I think with Feynman, he was willing to constantly question himself. So um, even if his pure kind of mental horsepower wasn't at the top, I mean, he was definitely much above average. He could memorize things, but I feel like he always had heuristics and approximations. And so he was able to sort of use his set of tricks and be willing to absorb new ones and just sort of apply them without getting his ego involved. So I think if he didn't know something, he was curious to learn how it worked and he would sort of tinker with it. And so I think in my mind, that attitude is actually uh, probably responsible for most of his success just because I think he was willing to question the kind of orthodoxy where people would have been hemmed in. I think even for physics, he kind of came up with his own um, Feynman diagrams and his sort of own notation for things. And I don't know how many people would have done that. I think a lot of people would have. Um, and actually earlier in the book, he said for even for math, he came up with his own symbols and notation. He thought that, um, you know, certain types of notation was awkward. So he's essentially putting things into his own terms. So I think a lot of his, his success came from really accepting what made him comfortable and working with that versus trying to conform himself to systems that that were essentially inefficient for him. So you bring up, a, I think, what I think is uh, one of the most interesting parts about Feynman. And I always try to look for these, you could call them sort of internal, not really contradictions, but where someone takes two seemingly opposite qualities and blends them together in such a way that they really enhance each other and make you question 
whether they're actually opposites. And so in Feynman's case, I see this one end of confidence that he just has this like fearlessness and confidence to, to try things and do things and feel like he will be successful at them. And the other hand, you have this sort of profound humility, I think. And again, this may be from one of his videos. It may not have, he may not have said this actual quote in the book, but he says something to the effect of, you know, I know how hard it is to know a thing. So like the amount of work that goes into prove even the most basic ideas in mathematics and physics meant that he had this just great humility about how, you know, how things should work and how, what things are true. And he didn't just sort of accept things or take it for granted, or even from his own perspective, I don't think that he even took his own ideas with that much uh, conviction unless he had, you know, personally proven it himself. And then on the other hand, you have this incredible confidence and they seem to work seamlessly together, really just sort of showing that you can, you can have those, both of those qualities. Yeah. And I don't think confidence and humility are necessarily opposed. I think, and you know, the kind of the caricatures of them might be, but I think in Feynman's case, um, I think it was, I, and I'm trying to even frame it or phrase it in a way that makes sense, but it's kind of a confidence in the process, I think. So I think he was confident that by questioning things, essentially, by he's confident that being humble would eventually get him to understand things better. So I think he was confident maybe in the strategy, but then each particular incident, you know, each particular battle with an idea or, you know, with an experiment, he wasn't personally invested in whether it came out successful because he knew he would learn something. And I think that process, like the scientific method or just questioning what you knew, I think he had a confidence in, in that approach as being the right thing long term. And, you know, one of the big reasons I picked this book is, of course, it was inspiration for this uh, technique, this learning technique that I called the Feynman Technique. And I feel a little bad about naming it now uh, the Feynman technique because at the time when I, I called it this, it was just that I had you know, just recently read this book. I was kind of suffused with his sort of spirit of understand things in your own terms, in your own way. And I remember, and I, I think I remembered someone incorrectly, I remember this passage from the book where he, he talks about dealing with this physics paper that he didn't understand. And then how did he actually like explain it to himself? And I seem to think like in my head that he, he explained how he got through that obstacle in a lot more detail than he actually did in the book. In the book, he just says something kind of hand wavy of like, oh, yeah, and I, I read it through and like kind of went line by line. And then I sort of understood it. And I took that, you know, to mean something a little bit more elaborate of how he actually went through and did it, which ended up being the whole technique. And um, so I don't know, you know, to what extent. Feynman's methods for understanding things, how much resemblance they bore with this technique that I, I kind of named after him. But for me, I think just the spirit of the technique of, of trying to really understand things and not be convinced that you understand something that you actually don't is, is really just through every chapter of this book. So what do you think about that? Yeah. Um, I, I actually, when I was reading that particular passage about the physics paper, I was reminded of you. I said, oh, yeah, this is, you know, probably the inspiration. No, but it's, it's great. I mean, I think his sister told, like, he was mm -hmm. frustrated because he couldn't understand something. And I think his sister encouraged him just to break it down to simple parts and sort of go line by line. And yeah, in the book, there's other examples, too, where he'll be talking with mathematicians. And he, I think he has a quote about how, you know, he can basically tell you if a theory is true or not, as long as you start with kind of simple examples about 
what the top what, what the terms and definitions mean and he basically created a mental model and then as they were explaining the theory he was modifying the model and then he could say yep you know this is true because the idea that I have in my head, you know, still makes sense. And so I think that general approach, um, you know, the specific strategy, but whether it's writing something down or thinking of an example, um, I like analogies, you know, it's really just about being uh, honest with yourself about if you've truly understood something. And I think a lot of us, we just take things at face value and just think that the memorized definition is is the ultimate level of understanding but um i think Feynman was very in tune with himself and he he would he would be very honest about whether something was confusing or not and so he would be unwilling or sorry he wasn't um afraid to say i don't understand and he'd stop you know the explainer and, and have them give an example and i think a lot of people um were either too shy or kind of intimidated or something so we we're just going to kind of nod our heads and pretend to understand when we're actually lost and i think Feynman um was confident enough in in himself to not feel foolish and just ask questions. Well, I think this is something that you uh, brought up um, his story from being in Brazil uh, about kind of the difference in educational philosophies about sort of memorizing versus understanding. And I've seen that a lot uh, talking to students um, often from other educational traditions where they'll talk about, well, you know, here you just have to memorize everything. You just have to learn it that way. And I don't know whether that's a systematic thing, like meaning that, you know, certain educational systems, they like the, you know, repeat the definition of X verbatim rather than did you actually understand it? And I, I don't know, I've always been looking at it sort of from the outside, because in our education system here in North America, I have very much felt that there is a benefit to getting understanding. And it's just sort of a myth or I don't want to say myth but it's a misconception that a lot of students have that they see all these sort of bewildering concepts and ideas and they go to memorize them because it seems to be the only inroad into this kind of thicket of of an intellectual space and they don't really see that the, the right way to learn it is to try to understand these concepts deeply and so they just sort of resort to memorization but it may be true that in other places just the way that they test you really benefit someone who's going to memorize instead of understand. And I think uh, Feynman had some sort of sharp words to say about that. Yeah, I think um, a lot of it comes down to incentives because, um, yeah, in the chapter in Brazil, he kind of sat in or he asked some students to, um, you know, kind of show them how the classes were taught. And basically the, the, the exams were just essentially testing your, your memorization ability. So there wasn't really the need, I suppose, for creative thought because you didn't have to demonstrate that at all. And so a lot of actually in the book, you sort of see how the incentives um, of different systems essentially shape the outcome. And so, yeah, in the Brazil case, um, you know, the students could had memorized definitions and they had very precise, crisp definitions. But when he'd ask a question about applying it to a scenario, like, you know, uh, you know, light bouncing off water or something, they, they couldn't apply it. And so he realized that they had a very fragile understanding um, and yeah, I think unfortunately, you know, it is easier to test a memorized definition than it is to sort of ask a creative question. Um, but ultimately, if we're, you know, if we're concerned about true education and not just kind of the, the pantomime or like the education theater, so to speak, you know, if we actually want to really understand things, then we need to go beyond those memorizations. Absolutely. And I know um, another example you brought up uh, when we were having the pre-recording discussion was um, about you know, certain, he was looking at some textbooks, one of the stories he tells us, uh, reviewing some potential textbooks, and it turns out he was one of the few people who was actually reading them. And he felt like the person who was writing them was not really 
in a full grasp of understanding of the subject. And one of the ideas that this sort of touched on was the idea of uh, what is an explanation supposed to do? And sometimes people think that science is about using sciencey words, you could say, in a certain way that like, oh, well, I used a sciencey word as opposed to a religious or supernatural or that kind of word. And therefore, you know, I've done my job explaining it. Whereas the goal of science is, I think, something something stronger than that, meaning that, you know, you're making an explanation that uh, has has something at stake. It has some predictions that, you know, could be shown to be wrong. So maybe you want to talk a little bit about that, you know, where that example is coming from and, and what your thoughts on it. Sure. Yeah. So in the textbook case, um, Fine was asked to review some textbooks um, for kids, uh, I think in the LA school district. And so he basically called them all lousy, you know, and he basically said that the, you know, he would be downstairs screaming at the errors he saw. And it wasn't just the errors. I mean, he could forgive errors, but it's more of the kind of conceptual misunderstanding of the fundamentals. And so um, one of the examples was um, there's kind of a picture of um, like a spring and I think um, a kid on a bicycle and maybe um, I, I think like a, a, a ball moving downhill. And then the question was, what makes it go? What makes these all go? And then the answer was energy. And so he, you know, it's, it's just, it's just a word energy, you know, magic, you know, wubblub, it's just any word you want to say, like all motion is, is energy. Okay. But then he also said, well, everything stops because of energy too. So what makes it stop? Oh, energy makes it stop. So it's kind of a meaningless statement, but then you think that because you're using a scientific word like energy, that we're really understanding things. And so, um, I've actually, Feynman talked about this, um, with his dad, he said, well, his father would ask, okay, you know, what, if you take the example, what made it go? Well, I'm riding my bike. Okay. What made it go? Well, the food I had. Okay. Well, how did the food come there? Well, because of the plant and how was the plant formed? Oh, because of the sun. So essentially all energy, if you want to call it that is really just sunlight that has been transformed. So we've basically taken sunlight and through many chemical processes, transformed it into motion, into heat, into food, into plants. So that's kind of a, a better way to talk about what's happening. But um, I think the book just kind of just used this one word description of energy and it's not edifying. It's not really explaining anything. It's just kind of a magic word that um, it really isn't any different from the word magic, really. It's just something that happened. And so Feynman was kind of concerned that people, the authors especially, weren't truly seeing the fundamental idea. They're just kind of repeating these sort of um, textbook definitions without any insight. That's a really good example. And I... Um... I, and again, I'm blurring my lines of what I got from the book. And there's also these series of uh, YouTube videos that you can find um, that kind of cover interviews where he's had, where he's talked about, again, in his sort of classic style, he's sort of interesting ideas and uh, concepts and explaining phenomena. And one of the ones that I really like is, um, is about uh, trees, because you were talking about you know, sunlight and all the energy coming from there. And it's like, where does the tree come from? And just sort of the intuition is that the tree comes from the ground, that like material is drawn up from the ground into the tree. But that's not actually the case that, you know, most of the tree is coming from carbon, which comes from carbon dioxide. So really the tree comes out of the air, that that's where it's coming out of. And he has some other examples like this of, you know, like he has another one. I'm not, again, I'm not 100% confident it's he talks about in the book, but uh, what is the thing that keeps the trains on the tracks? And so I won't explain this one, but, you know, most people think that it's, well, there's some kind of, you know, little stopper so that if the tracks kind of go too far to one side, it'll like screech on the side and 
you know, that is an emergency measure, but it's not the main principle for why the trains stay on the track. So I, I leave it to the people listening to this podcast. If they want to think about the answer for a little bit and they want, they can go uh, check it out on YouTube and it'll explain what keeps the trains on the track. And I think it's these sort of curiosities about everyday things. So, you know, how often have you seen a train and how many people have actually wondered what keeps the train's wheels on the tracks and, you know, maybe just reaches from, well, those things on the side without really thinking about, well, if that, that was really what was keeping on the track, the trains would be screeching all the time and <laughs> making this god-awful racket. So I, I really like his attitude for taking something that's ordinary and, again, having this humility about it to look at it and say, you know what, maybe I don't actually know what's going on here. And I think that's just such a profound attitude that most people don't have. Most people, you know, they think they know all these things and then, you know, just because they never introspect, they never dig beyond the surface. Yeah, I think, and that's kind of the the heart of science that I think he was hoping people would learn or, or at least textbooks and things would convey is really just that kind of curiosity, that sort of questioning um uh, instinct, I guess, and to kind of ask, you know, what is true and how do we know it and how can we test it? And I think when you just present someone with a list of pre-found conclusions, um, he, he also, the example of, uh, in one of the textbooks, they were trying to explain, um, uh, is some equation of motion. So they said, okay, you, you have a ball, you know, rolling down a ramp and here's the times, uh, that, you know, here's how far it went at each time. And there's some slight errors in the, uh, you know, or rather slight variance in the measurements because it was supposed to be a quote unquote experimental result. So you see that it's a little bit, you know, earlier or later. And, you know, maybe that's because of friction. But then Feynman said, well, with the real ball, you actually have two types of energy. You have the kind of the potential energy or as it's, it's as velocity increases, it's, you know, being going faster and faster, but also a physical ball has to rotate. So some of the energy is actually going into rotating the ball as well as sort of moving it. And so the actual uh, results that you would get would be something like five-sevenths of what they were. So it would be quite a big difference from what they showed. So even the person doing the example in the book, it was clear that it was a completely made-up example that they'd just taken a you know an equation of motion and just sort of plotted them out without actually doing it. And so it's, it's kind of, an, again, an example of um, if you want to use a real-world example, just try it out actually try it with the physical object and say oh my gosh the equations are really off why is that oh because the ball itself is rotating um so anyway that's just another example of you know almost the theater of learning versus actually understanding something well he, he talks about in one part about learning um art and this is again something that i think uh is very interesting about fine because a lot of people have this sort of attitude that oh, I'm a math or science person, or I'm good at, you know, like languages, or I'm a verbal person, or I'm an artistic person. And like, like, those are different categories of people that are like clearly delineated. And, you know, you're one type or the other. I think that's a real pervasive myth that, I don't know, I, I'm not, I haven't seen any uh, evidence that, you know, gives it a, a sound scientific backing that there's this real strong category type differences of, you know, analytical thinkers and creative thinkers. And I think he really showed that by kind of a willingness to learn, again, like languages and art and this kind of stuff. And one of the things he talks about in taking the art class is how the art teachers used such a different pedagogy than, um, than they do in physics. And what they do in physics is 
they just give you tons and tons of methods. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And he said, well, the art teacher very, felt very reluctant to say, do this or do that because you know, don't say make the lines heavier because, well, maybe there was some guy who did it with, you know, lines that weren't very heavy and he was very successful. So there's there's no real hard and fast rules. And I think he kind of took from this insight that, you know, what would physics be like if it was taught maybe more like art where you're kind of trying to solve some sort of problem and you're like, well, you could do that, but then you run into this problem and then, you know, this kind of um, more organic problem solving. And I think your example of the, you know, the person who made the fake experiment is, is perfectly right, is that very often how we learn math and physics is divorced from the reality of how it's actually practiced and practiced in this kind of like, hmm, okay, well, how can we solve this? How can we figure this out and, and try this and that out? I remember hearing the mathematician Terence Taub saying that, you know, he was a bit of a prodigy. He, I think he he got his uh, PhD at some, you know, some incredibly young age. I want to say like 14, but I don't know for sure. And he, uh, you know, is one of the most famous living mathematicians, one of the most successful living mathematicians. And he was talking about how he was very good at math when he was a kid, but it was very misleading because when you actually start doing math as a researcher, it's so different from the math that you had to like memorize all these formulas and learn all these concepts and theories. It's more like, well, here's the problem. And let's just try stuff and sort of you know have kind of an intuition about well maybe let's try solving it this way or try doing it this way mm, that, that doesn't work because you get this problem and i think that richard feynman had that same kind of attitude from a very early age this sort of problem solving attitude and i think it probably led to him being a good physicist but it also led to him exploring other avenues of learning that maybe he wouldn't have if he had just been kind of a scholastic type where he's just trying to memorize and learn things in the academic sense. Yeah, I think it is easy for people to, you know, it's also psychologically comforting to say, well, you know, I don't need to try this thing that could make me feel, you know, embarrassed or something because, I, you know, I'm good at this one thing, so I don't need to um, kind of feel embarrassed ever again because I know the, you know, the one thing that I'm good at. And I think Feynman, um, essentially, he wasn't afraid of being silly or, you know, he's his whole attitude is kind of playing pranks and, you know, being willing to kind of look silly wasn't a problem for him. I think one of the uh, examples I like is, I think he was going to Cornell and they were trying, they were having trouble trying to get a hotel, and so he basically suggested, oh, there's a pile of leaves on the street. You know, he, he was willing to sleep there, but his buddy didn't want to sleep, you know, in the pile of leaves, so they they eventually found a couch or something. But he's, you know, he's willing to kind of not have any pretense about things. Um, so I think that includes just trying, you know, for drawing or for music, for language, just, just to try it. Like he mentioned for Italian, he would just make up, you know, fake Italian phrases to yell at the uh, groundskeepers as he was passing by. And, you know, I don't know how many of us would do that, but he just had a, kind of a playful attitude. And I think that uh, that allows you to make a lot of progress. I mean, yeah, maybe there's people that are naturally very talented at art, but just going off and trying it, I think gets you um, a lot of the way there. So you are obviously someone who I think you take after Feynman in many respects in that like you really strive for these kind of intuitive understandings. Uh, no Nobel Prize yet, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, I, yeah. you know, but if I, I can... Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I think like you, you, you shared a lot of his philosophy and obviously, you know, you've read this biography now and many of the people listening, maybe they haven't had a chance to read the book yet, although I really think they should. Um, what would you say are your kind of your takeaways of if someone listening to this right now is, you know, this Feynman guy, he sounds really great. How could I be 
more like Feynman and embodying that kind of attitude towards life, what do you think would be the, let's say, top three things that you would, you would kind of endeavor to work on to do to be more like Feynman? Oh, man, good question. Um, so I think the first takeaway, I'd say, is probably recognizing when things make sense and you know and it's okay for things not to make sense like something might click great if it doesn't maybe you can resolve it then or maybe you write it down for later and so um in my head um sort of similar to you you're the Feynman technique i have uh what i call the adept method basically analogy diagram example plain english and technical and those are the components that i feel i need to understand something so if someone's giving me a lesson about something or if, if I'm learning something and I don't have an analogy, a diagram, an example, and a plain English description, I basically feel it's kind of like, um, you know, it, it's, it's like a gap that I feel where I don't quite understand something. So, you know, everybody has their own checklist or their own requirements, but at least having something where you know when something clicks comfortably um, and having that sort of standard for yourself, I think is is important. So I think Feynman you know, he would, again, stop people and, and ask them for a plain English example. Um, if they were explaining something, he couldn't follow it. So whatever that is for you, I think having that standard is pretty important. Yeah, I was going to say, for me, I think uh, maybe I'll, I'll keep the list short so, so we don't uh, leave everything uh, explained. But I think if I were to say the biggest takeaway from seeing Richard Feynman, how, we're doing, how he was doing things, was uh, was to be curious. And I think that's a real... It sounds really simple, but I think if you see in the book, you can see how he gets himself into situations and you can see how maybe your intuitive response or like what you would do by reflex is not what he ends up doing in the book. And part of that is just maybe his confidence or his charisma. But I think a lot of it is his curiosity that he's genuinely um, interested in trying to find out about things. And I feel like, you know, this was brought up in the discussion about about this curiosity is saying, well, well, isn't curiosity or isn't interest just another one of these inherent qualities? So if we're kind of saying, well, you can't just, you know, snap your fingers and be as smart as Feynman. Well, what makes you think you can snap your fingers and be as curious or as interested? But I actually kind of disagree here. And I think that curiosity is something that you cultivate. And I think it's because a lot of the things that push us away from curiosity are these kind of encrusted fears and aversions that we have to things from maybe negative exposures in the past, particularly through school that, you know, someone shows you an equation for something and then you have all these, you know, this mild panic attack from your days trying to learn algebra where you weren't very good at it and it, it strikes you as hard or, you know, you see someone, again, speaking another language and you're just like, oh, I just remember trying to memorize all that vocabulary and, and so, you know what, let's just, let's just push that off. I'm not interested in that. And I think if you take it from the perspective that curiosity and interest is something that you can cultivate to the extent that you want to sort of tear down those barriers to your own, um, your own curiosity or to your own interest in things, I think that's just such a huge benefit. And it, you know, me describing it in these abstract terms and this sort of like, yeah, be more curious is like maybe the worst kind of self-help problem. But I think that's why you need to read this book. I think reading Shirley or Joking, Mr. Feynman is showing you in examples, what does it mean to be a curious person? And what does that mean to like reach its fullest extent? So that would be my motivation for reading this book is to see, you know, this abstract idea of being interested in things, being curious, not letting kind of orthodoxy or dogma or just accepting the status quo hold you back, what all those jargony buzzwords actually mean in practice.
Exactly. And I think Feynman even talks about his, um, you know, he had sort of a, a burnout, I think, in physics where he was kind of not interested in it or having trouble. And then he basically had to return to play. Like he was just playing with ideas that had no application. I think he was, you know, looking at the way plates were wobbling as they spun and how the logo on the plate would turn around. And um, so I think even for himself, it wasn't like he was necessarily curious all the time and playful all the time. He still had to put in a little bit of, I don't know if it's effort, but he had to sort of adjust his attitude and allow himself to explore things that, that weren't um, necessarily going to have an application. I, th I think it's difficult to say, be curious, you know, kind of be genuine, be genuinely interested, but with the purpose of being more effective, I think as soon as you put that goal orientation there, it, it might taint the way that you approach it. So I think allowing yourself just to have that free form exploration without even in a practical application, I think that can help cultivate it. Well, I want to thank very much Khalid Azad for joining us. For those of you who are not familiar with Khalid, he has an excellent website, betterexplained.com. He was also previously on this uh, book club talking about Zen and the Auto Motorcycle Maintenance. So if you're interested in you know, our discussions, uh, you know, this time we're talking about uh, Richard Feynman and his sort of life and attitude. But previously we we're talking about a lot of uh, actually quite similar themes. It's, it's impressive how many times you can read a book and end up having similar ideas and conversations, even if the subject material is quite different. And so I highly recommend anyone who's interested, both check out his amazing website and also uh, our previous book club recording. Thank you again for coming on the book club. Thanks so much.